Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show today is all about diplomacy with the Trump administration, what is changing and what stays the same. We had Dr. Mary Curtin, who is the diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. She has 25 years as a Department of State Foreign Services officer. She worked in a lot of different capacities, but she served in Belgium, Poland, Tunisia, Mali, Chile, and Washington, D.C., she had a lot of insights about how uh, policy might be affected at the small level and kind of the day-to-day operations, but also in kind of the big level when it's two countries uh, trying to hash it out and create some policy together. It's a very interesting conversation, and before we get to that, I'd like to thank our media sponsor this season, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find more information at MinPost.com. This season of our shows is also sponsored by uh, the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council and the Minnesota Legacy Amendment. We couldn't have done it without them. Well, we could have, Uh, but they help a lot, and we greatly appreciate that. Um, That's all uh, from sponsorships, so we'll get to the show. I hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much for being here. Um, And uh, so I I sometimes like to ask uh, guests just uh, to get the ground set uh, somebody who I'm sure a lot of us have heard of the Foreign Service or maybe even know somebody, but we don't maybe know exactly what does that mean to be in the Foreign Service. I'm going to uh, until you tell me otherwise that you're a spy. Uh, so is that basically what you you did or no, no. not at all. Uh, and if I did, I couldn't tell you. So well, it's okay. Nobody listens to this show. So um, so what I, what is the actual job of a Foreign Service agent? Officer. Officer, excuse me, <laughs> sorry. So, um, foreign service officers have um, several different roles. One is that they provide protection to American citizens who are overseas and issue visas, or not these days, to uh, foreigners who wish to come to the United States for a visit or to immigrate. Um, they, When they are overseas, they help to... Um, they are in tar- they are responsible for understanding what is going on in in a country politically economically and reporting that back to washington so that decision makers in washington can understand the country that that they're dealing with um and then some foreign service officers are in charge of managing all those processes, managing the the money the buildings personnel things like that that's really interesting because uh- the way you're talking about it, it seems very much like uh, you're sort of the, a foreign service uh, officer is funneling information and mm-hmm. knowledge upwards back towards. And I think sometimes maybe we have the notion that, uh, you know, Washington sets some sort of policy or some uh, idea and then it flows out through the foreign service to like be. But it, it does. That- it goes both ways. So foreign service officers send information into Washington, or they might work in Washington um, helping to advise on policy. And then when policy is made and that is communicated out to uh, embassies, then foreign service officers working with ambassadors are responsible for explaining that to foreign governments and in some cases trying to convince foreign governments to agree with us and support our policies. And the other piece I find really interesting about the job, which will help hopefully segue into, you know, talking about current events, which is a big part of why we're here tonight, but 
you were in the Foreign Service for 25 years yeah. under both uh, Democratic and Republican mm-hmm. administrations. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those policies change, I mm-hmm. imagine, and whatnot. And part of the job of being a career diplomat or a career person is that you ha- you're a through line with some of that. I'm just wondering, though, how does that actually feel uh, in previous times? We can talk about this yeah. time in a moment. But uh, when there is that switch and you're like, oh... Uh, it's a different policy set now. Well, you know, sometimes, um, depending on your opinion, it can be great, and sometimes it can be difficult. And you know, most anyone will say. Most you know, most foreign service officers have their own political opinions, but the whole idea of of the foreign service, like the rest of the civil service, is that you accept the idea that you work in a in a nonpartisan fashion in your job. Um, because that is what our democracy needs. And I think that's one of the ideas that I think is under threat these days. Um, and if you can't do that, then you shouldn't be in the Foreign Service. Well, we should... So let's talk about that. So, uh, again, there's there's a lot... It's only an hour and something show, so we probably can't cover everything, but a lot of people are uh, have talked about this is different, sort of what's happening now uh, in particularly in terms of foreign policy and the relationship with... So uh, how different is it? So you uh, you were there from, you know, Clinton to Bush, Bush Re- to... Reagan, Reagan, Reagan to, to Bush, Cl- to, to Bush, Clinton, to, to Bush, to Obama. And, yeah. But this one you're saying is... Diff- it, this change has felt different. Mm-hmm. Um, how so? so? So having been in the Foreign Service through all those different transitions, even... Um, sometimes even one, one secretary of state to the next in the same president, there can be a lot of change. And so people expect that there would be change. Um, but what, what seems to be different in, in this case is the, what appears to be the almost complete dismissal of the State Department as an important part of how the United States interacts with the world. Um, no, but tell us. I, so I should say, in case people are wondering what's <laughs> yeah. happening over here. So at every, I, I just I forgot to mention this at the top. No, this is exciting. So at every show, we also have a guest artist who is uh, live, sort of interpreting what we're doing, um, and um, it's going great. You can tell he's working out his anger about uh, some of the foreign policy changes that have happened. Um, but at the end of the show, we're going to have a unique piece of art uh, that our artist has made for us, and he's going to present it to us all uh, at the end. So, um, so we'll just talk through uh, the the cardboard cutting. Uh, so you were, we were saying, under attack. Yeah, or we were. Yeah. It's, it's like that terrible paper mache massacre from Poland. Um, so, uh, so going back. Um, so th- this the dismissal piece and and uh, of the foreign service. It, I, it, it's not just the dismissal of the foreign service. There seems to be a complete un- mis- or lack of understanding or lack of interest in the idea that you have to maintain this sort of network of relationships that it takes work and that knowledge is a good thing. You know that knowledge of of these. Oh my goodness, I, this is like. <laughs> You're just you. I'm not being very diplomatic. No, but. you're great. Uh, you're you're a perfect Minnesotan. I just have to say, like this is you know some of us think that knowledge is good, but you know, <laughs> different strokes for different folks, I guess. Um, so, 
why though? Let's just circle back. So yeah. you know, why do we need to kind of keep everything running? I think there are some folks who very well might think, um, you know, okay. What if you know we make uh, some folks in in Europe or or in South America or in Asia unhappy? Like you know, what matters about that? I guess for our day to day lives. Well, you know, I think one of the problems in and not just the the sort of fake news media, but I think a lot of times um, the way that the interaction of the U.S. with the world is portrayed is as though it's all about military actions. And so people wonder, well, what is it that all of these diplomatic, you know, cookie pushers do? And Cookie pushers? Yeah, that's the, yeah. Do you actually you know. have cookies at the State Department? Is that a... <laughs> Is there well, a recipe? Well, there's this idea that all you do is like go to receptions and great dinners and things like that, which is not true, but um, that's the image. That's the stereotype. But, you know, the thing is that the, the United States interaction with the world, whether it's tourism or trade or, you know, students coming to our universities – all kind of depend on there being this sort of broad goodwill that there's rules in the world, world, rules of trade. You know, how much tariffs do you put on goods from China? And if you suddenly change that one day without consulting with China and others, then China's going to put a huge tariff, say, on soybeans from Minnesota. And if you create travel restrictions, like right now, the uh, international applications to American universities are down 40%. So the little things, this whole fabric of our interaction with the world is about a lot more than, you know, military action. And it just gets portrayed that way, I think, a lot. So let's dig into this a little more. So uh, something like a, a tariff or, you know, a, a change in law or rules mm -hmm. seems very dramatic and whatnot. But a lot of what is grabbing attention lately are what might be described as uh, by someone who's less objective than I am, uh, dumb things that, uh, like, a president <laughs> might do. And so, you know, uh, so there was a story, and I think it, we mentioned it in the program about, uh, and it's not totally confirmed, but that President Trump might have handed Angela Merkel, like, a bill for NATO for $315 billion dollars or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so you read that, and you're like, well, that's embarrassing for us um, if it happened. However... You also think, okay, maybe, you know, uh, that's a stupid thing, but is Germany actually going to, like, change any sort of policy? Are they going to do anything differently because we did something stupid and embarrassing like that? You know, I think in the, in the short run, I don't think Germany is going to come back and give us a, a counter bill for anything. Um, but it... it and if, if, you know, if there was one stupid thing or two stupid things, that would happen. But to – so suppose this story isn't even true. This story is being reported in, like, reliable news sources across Europe. And it is building up this image that the United States under Donald Trump is not reliable because the information that comes out – to give Germany a bill for $300 billion shows that you do not understand what NATO is or how it works. So the, the reality is, despite all the talk about Asia and everything, you know, one of our largest trading relationships and a lot of other things that we do in the world, we do with the Europeans and the European Union. And yeah. to the extent that we lose that respect and we lose that relationship, 
Um, not even to mention Russia, you know? I mean, you could bring Russia into that issue, too. Then, you know, where does that, where does that put us in the world, and how, how secure and stable of a world do you have if that, those relationships get destroyed? See, this is a... I'm really curious about this, uh, personally, is just... If you go back and you read a lot of history, a ton of sort of world events have happened based on personalities, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, have you know? We get into World War One because uh, the Archduke was like, "I'm going to drive through Serbia, whether or not anybody tells me it's a good idea," and and we kind of roll out from there. I think that a lot of us have the opinion, or we have maybe we hold the false assumption that. Well, things are more orderly now. We're beyond sort of like individual actors um, kind of creating and uh, defining how whole nations operate. But maybe that's not – I mean, how much should we put stake into there's a personality that drives policy versus we're going to just put that aside because the national interests are beyond that? Well, I think – I personally think that personalities – are always important. They're not the only thing, but they are, they're, like you said, they're important in history, and I do think they're important now. And um, I just had someone talking to my class today who's an expert on North Korea and Iran, and he was saying that his fear is not that there would be a deliberate move towards some kind of a war, but this sort of inadvertent, um, personality-driven, you know, this action, that action kind of thing, that that is what's dangerous is um which is sort of how world war 1 started oh good yeah. uh. <laughs> so um well uh thankfully though uh, we are investing heavily in our uh, diplomatic service, uh, right? Uh, Wrong, yeah. So, um, you know, there's a, a great sort of statistic. Um, there are more people in military bands than there are foreign service officers. Um, so we have Follow-up question. Yeah. Does the Foreign Service have a band? No. <laughs> well, what are you waiting for? Maybe you would get a few and, more dollars. Right. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. There's, a, um, there's an organization that, did, that has done a website that shows what they call diplomatic strength, and it shows the countries that have the greatest influence in the world also have the greatest number of embassies and people in embassies. And right now, the United States leads that. Um, and what it means is, for example, at the UN, if you want to have a vote on sanctions on Iran, that means that we have people in embassies in every single country in the world that might be voting on that. And those people can go and talk to the governments in every single country and try to influence how people think about things. If you start reducing that and ignoring the professionals, then you don't have that information and you don't have the influence either. So it goes both ways. Let's talk about the... the Top of that food chain, uh, our new Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, mm-hmm. which, by the way, uh, if n- just casting based on the name, I mean, he was either going to be a Secretary of State <laughs> or a Bond villain. Right. So, um, <laughs> so uh, but there's a lot of the reporting has been that he's almost a Secretary of State in absentia. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So in just the first few weeks of him, I mean, what have you seen from him and, tr- and how should we be sort of thinking about how his role is playing out, how it's different than past secretaries of state? Well, um, there's a couple of things. One, 
Um, I don't think anyone really knows what kind of influence or in he has at the White House. Uh, according and does to the, that matter for a Secretary oh, of State? Oh, it matters, because how, how will the Secretary of State influence the decisions that are made at the White House if they don't have some kind of a relationship? So, I mean, think of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. I mean, they were at loggerheads with each other, but at least they knew each other, and they made a decision to work together. Um, it doesn't mean it was always smooth, but, you know, there was an understanding of the other personality. Um, and, and it's really a mystery as to whether or not he has that influence or how he even conceives his role. Um, he has chosen to remain completely apart from the press, which means that other people get to, other countries, other people get to shape the message that's out there. And um, the United States, he doesn't seem to have any sense of, of being a, a public figure who shapes policy. Well, this is so interesting to me because prior to these episodes just in the last few weeks with, uh, I think the one that really sort of pushed a lot of this is that uh, Secretary Tillerson uh, did a foreign trip and he basically, he brought along one journalist as yeah, opposed to like yeah. sort of a, a, a press pool, which you right. normally would. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't, uh, I don't normally think about wh why you would have a press pool along right. with the Secretary of State. So, I, I mean, what what do we lose by not having an American press pool along with the Secretary so of State? So when, when the press pool travels, then either the Secretary of State or the staff people that travel will actually be talking to the reporters and say, okay, when we go to Korea, this is going to be our message. This is what we're going to be telling the Koreans. This is what we're going to say in China. This is our goals. And so then, you know, the American press then... Um, sort of gets first crack at at understanding what that message is. What happened, for example, in South Korea, something as minor as him not having dinner. We should it yeah, was explain. The, it was the South Koreans who said, oh, well, he said he didn't want to do it, which he then later said, no, that wasn't it at all. But Or it, the Chinese put out a statement about the nature of the talks about North Korea and not, not us. And so um, he... It, I think coming from the corporate world that he did where he did not feel the need to have public presence, he it doesn't seem to have brought anybody on board with him who would convince him to get out there and shape the message. Well, so. let's just, I, I mean, let's drill into that because, again, I think that there are folks who would say, fine, let China or South Korea define the yeah. message. What do we care? Like, uh, what is it? Why does it matter to us that the United States is shaping the message or shaping the perception of something like a visit or a talks? Well, anytime that you have a visit or you have talks, you know, you have what goes on in the talks and you have sort of the, the public perception of it, which helps influence thinking about whether this was successful or not or um, and helps actually influence the outcome of the discussions and whether or not you're going to achieve the goals that, that you want. And so, you know, the public messaging is, I mean, like I tell my students, you can't, for example, write a paper about negotiations on Iran just by the public messaging. The public messaging isn't everything, but it's a really important part of, of steps that are taken to solve a problem. So uh, let's just uh, go through a couple more things. I should say in the second half of the show, we open it up to all of you for your questions of our guests. So uh, please be thinking about anything that you're curious about in terms of foreign policy, the new administration, um, 25 years uh, in the Foreign Service. 
uh, good Polish recipes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I, so Rex Tillerson maybe is a, a little bit of a an empty suit to some degree. But luckily, we have lots of people right below him that are filling in those jobs. Right? Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So um, what's kind of ironic is that over the last 16 years in the Bush administration and the Obama administration, there is this growing complaint that there were too many political appointees at the State Department. And now there are no political appointees at the State Department. We win! And, uh, yeah, I know. It, it, yeah, at first you think, oh, good, maybe they'll promote the Foreign Service officers into those positions. But instead, what it means is that you have Rex Tillerson and you have a lot of really good people who are trying to do their jobs, but there's no, like, say, senior management in the middle um, to convey and to be part of that chain of thought up and down. And, and there, there haven't even been any announcements of who those people might be. So where, yeah. where does that end up? I mean, in practical terms, like, where's an example of that that ends up creating a problem? Um, it creates a problem because the people who are there are sort of are acting, and that's actually not now their title, acting assistant secretary or acting deputy secretary. And so they have a limited scope of operation. They don't have any good sort of political contacts over at the White House. They don't, um, they, they don't, they're not, they don't have sort of a, the trust maybe of the Secretary of State. And there always is a mix of political and career people at that level. Um, but it, a lot of the people who were the career people who normally would stay on until someone new um, is appointed were asked to leave. So um, there, there, is a, there is a significant gap at that, at that senior level of people who are really the, the real advisors of both the Secretary and then the White House. And also with no, say, confirmed deputy, then when the White House has meetings with foreign leaders and the secretary's traveling, then no one goes, the, the, no one is part of the meeting. So they're not, the White House is not getting the advice of the State Department, and it's also not including the State Department in its thinking. So, so this is my uh, last piece, uh, and again, we'll open up for questions in the second half, but so you, you're teaching at the Humphrey School mm -hmm. and whatnot. What do you tell your students to watch for in terms of the changes or what's happening? What, what are the things that we should be paying attention to? So um, the, this semester's class started just the Wednesday before the inauguration. And I said, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not he continues to tweet and whether he, like, insults foreign leaders on his tweets. And I like how you use the word interesting there. Yeah. Again, very Minnesotan. <laughs> very interesting. Really interesting yeah. to see. And it didn't take, what, one day? And he was, you know, insulting Australia, I guess, you know, the, that he... Um, so what I've been trying to talk to my students about is to say which of these things are sort of normal settling in and which are really different. So number one, tweeting about foreign leaders is unprecedented and it, it just has to be hurting us. Um, what also is different is the whole issue of the relationships between people on his staff and maybe himself and Russia is absolutely unprecedented. Um, and I don't think we know for sure yet what all that is really about and is really worrisome. Um, and then this, this not even trying to put people into place, um, is, is different. So we actually talk in class about what is normal and what is different. 
And it, I, I think that we're, you know, this, this is really very different from how <laughs> things go. Okay, well, on that um, ominous note, uh, so again, a, a tremendous round of applause, please, for Dr. Mary Curtin. Okay, if you have a question, please just raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to go there, and then I'll come back over this way. Hi. If Trump is in office for four years, heaven mm -hmm. help us, how long do you think it'll take to undo the diplomatic damage that he does in four years? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's, um, it's hard to say because I think what we've seen on domestic things, I, I always am actually, despite what I said before, I have a lot of faith in a lot of people who are engaged in this. So um, I think there actually are a lot of really committed people um, who hopefully can hold some sway, including, interestingly enough, like the Secretary of Defense, who has said very clearly about the budget in the past, if you cut the State Department's budget, I'll need more bullets, you know, to say that we need we need to maintain those relationships. And nonetheless, so what what can be kind of interesting is, you know, suppose four years goes by and then we have a different president, then um, almost certainly whoever that is, they will have um, sort of a positive bounce, you know, um, just because <laughs> they will be better than than what's there. Um, and. Uh, you know, and I think I think there's actually what's interesting is I was reading even even China wants the United as much as China sees itself as a rival to the United States, it it doesn't want the United States absent, and so I think there's a lot of desire out there in the world. Um, but you know, I think that that there's a lot of ways in which there is damage that already has been done and that will would take time to repair. I mean, just to follow up quickly. Is there some amount that you can do to just say, and whether it's a next president or somebody, people have suggested even this is what the Secretary of State or other folks are doing, just saying, listen, just ignore that guy in the yeah. White House. Like, well, just, that was, that was, a, that was silly, uh, and we'll just move on from that. You know, I think that's what people thought, or I, I actually think a lot of people in the State Department hoped that was going to be what Rex Tillerson would do, and now I think people are worrying that that's not actually what's happening. So um, it's just very difficult to tell. You know, it's hard to tell what, what's really happening. So. All right, I have a question right here. Uh, is there any uh, <clears throat> truth in this Trump wanting to move the, our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? And if that happens, what might be the ramifications in the Middle East? Yeah. So you may not know this, but there's been legislation um, on the books for a long time, and I'm not sure how long. I think there's somebody in the audience who might know. But um, <laughs> so um, it states that the embassy of the United States in Israel should be moved to Jerusalem except if a president issues a national security waiver saying it's not a good idea. Every single president, Democratic and Republican, for quite a while has run on the idea that they will move that, that embassy. And it's always been political rhetoric because they understand that moving the embassy would have a serious impact on any efforts to bring about peace negotiations. Because as Peace you, negotiations in Israel. In, in, uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. Because as you know, there's a lot of different parties that have a stake in Jerusalem. Not just the Palestinians, not just the Israelis. 
um, other religious groups, including, you know, the Vatican has a stake. Um, uh, so it would be, it, it, it would be damaging. It would be one of the first things I would say was an actual action rather than rhetoric that would be damaging to any effort to be seen as any type of a neutral broker. Okay, uh, wait, there was a hand here. Did anybody in the back raise your hand now? So, I can run forward so there's so much uh, cross influence between relations with foreign parties and other departments, commerce, yeah. defense. Mm -hmm. So in a normal administration, how would that communication and partnership happen? So um, the there's a couple of ways that it happens. One of the jobs of the National Security Council, actually in the original legislation, is to coordinate um, policies that cut across different departments. And what happens in reality is, so all those Foreign Service officers, you know, some of whom are in Washington, they, um, in working on policies, are working with the Department of Commerce, or the U.S. Trade Representative, or the Department of Agriculture, the Defense Department, to look at the different issues that come up across the U.S. government on any particular issue that may be there. So, like, if you're going to, you know, sanctions are always an easy issue. So if you're going to put sanctions on Russia, then, you know, the Department of Agriculture is going to come in and say, yeah, but, you know, that's going to hurt us in terms of our exports. And so that when you make a policy decision, you understand the totality of the impact across the United States, across all the different aspects. And so a lot of it is all those mid-level people talking to each other about policy ideas that are going on, and then interagency meetings and, um, you know, where a lot of real work gets done to make decisions about policies that are really complex. Okay, we had a hand here. Yeah. Are the next four years going to be like really good times for Chinese diplomats? Um, you know, it, it could be. Um, China has a very has always had a really different idea of what their diplomats should be doing. They um they keep to a very narrow conception of how they relate with other countries whereas say Americans have a broader conception of building say like when I was in Poland um you would want to build relationships not just with the foreign ministry but also in the parliament and among news reporters and stuff to you know, convey U.S. policies, whereas the Chinese have always had a very, very formal, strict sort of definition of our job as diplomats is to speak to other governments. So they, um, they've been starting to, even before this administration, to have a broader um, sort of presence in the world, in addition to the stuff you see in the paper about military. And um, it, it, Either they or, you know, or Russians or Europeans. I mean, if there's a vacuum, somebody will fill it, and it could be China. It could be that China sees a broader role for itself in the world and takes advantage of this sort of vacuum to move into it. So I, uh, when I was at the Humphrey School, actually, mm -hmm. we had former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright visit, and mm -hmm. I remember asking her a question along these lines of, uh, you know, a lot of us grew up uh, probably thinking of the world as sort of a two-superpower kind of world uh, with uh, Russia and the United States. Um, but before that, you know, a long time ago, it was a mini-superpower kind of world, perhaps. Uh, and then we had a brief period where maybe it was America was the sole superpower. Maybe that's still where we are. But all of those sort of have complications, and I wonder how you think about it as a foreign service person. 
would you rather have a one superpower world, a two superpower world, or a many superpower world? Um, I guess I don't know. That's a that's you know what would I rather have? Sure. Um, you know I don't think it matters that much. Um, as as long as I you know I think one of the the problems of a one superpower world is that you can start to think you can do whatever you want. And I think the United States has done plenty of that. I think invading Iraq, for example, was this sort of sense that, well, we're the superpower, and we'll make a decision, and we'll just do it, and everybody just can either be with us or not. And um, and that has lasting repercussions. And so I think, you know, what I think is interesting in the time that we're in right now, China, to me, actually is acting in a way that's sort of a normal superpower that's growing acts. They're doing a lot of different things, whether it's economics or their military presence. And Russia, you know, the way Russia is acting is really in a like a different way. Their their you know their economy is in trouble. Um, they had lost a lot of their presence in the world, and so they are doing things more to disrupt the order that is there than to actually you know do this sort of simple building. So I think part of it depends on who the superpowers are. I mean, it wasn't good during the Cold War either. I mean, we say well there was peace, but there were a lot of countries where there was not peace, where there were all these proxy wars that we and the Soviets funded. You know, whether it was in Vietnam or Angola or Mozambique, you know, you can go around the world and see it. So, you know, any of those systems has good and bad things in it. Okay, I had a hand here. Yes. The president seems to have appointed a lot of generals to, yeah. to positions. What's the good and the bad uh, of that? Well, um, I'll start with the good. You know, a lot of military officers... Um, at that rank, have a lot of strategic experience around the world. Um, they are known as better organizational managers than um, maybe State Department people who operate more on their own. Um, so you know that there, there, there is good, and I think it is important to have a certain number of senior military people or former military people in the mix. The problem is their experience with the world often is only in areas where there has been conflict. And so there is a tendency, I think, in the military to understand the world through the lens of conflict rather than through this broader network that we've been talking about. Most of them have no experience with economic issues or cultural issues except as they might relate to the military. And so I think that having a few is sprinkled throughout the senior, uh, through the cabinet is, is good, but this sense that, um, you know, of the military having a broad sense of the, the complexity of all our relationships I think is, is, not, is not usually true. They don't usually have that experience. So I'm going to, oh, yeah, right down here, I have one. Good. In your long, esteemed career as a foreign servants officer, mm -hmm. where was the swankiest party you went to? Um, hmm. Okay, well, I guess the swankiest party I went to was a New Year's party at the ambassador's residence in Cairo when I was a really junior officer. And the ambassador actually told me, I went out for a trip, and he said to me, don't even try 
to out-sequin these people because you will never do it. So just wear something simple. So yeah, I would say that was the, the swankiest. And, and Senator Larry Pressler, does anybody remember him from South Dakota? Showed up with a sport coat and sneakers. Right. <laughs> so this is my, my foreign service officer side coming out, like, oh, he wore sneakers. But uh, I would say that was the swankiest party I ever went to. I yeah. see there's a hand right down here in front. When you, when you were first talking about the role of a foreign service, not agent, but officer, um, and you said that it involves uh, gathering information and passing it back, mm -hmm. and then again, there's the reverse direction. Mm -hmm. But my question is, when you, were, um, when you were describing gathering the information, et cetera, et cetera, it seemed to me that it was almost a definition of espionage. So my mm -hmm. question is, is there a clear line between the role of the Foreign Service Officer and the um, espionage? Yeah, type? there is a clear line, and it's it's how you gather the information. So that um, Foreign Service Officers do it openly. Um, you know, you have lunch with uh, someone who's in a parliament and ask them what they think, and they know who you are. And they, um, they know that they're speaking to someone who is from the U.S. government and is trying to understand what's going on in their country. Um, espionage across all countries um, is a little, it really is more, you know, sort of cloak and dagger where um, sometimes uh, people maybe misrepresent themselves. Um, sometimes uh, people pay for information that they receive. Um, because usually espionage involves attempting to acquire information that is not openly available. And so the word intelligence actually gets applied to the whole array of information, including what you can read in newspapers. Um, but covertly gathered uh, information usually is information that, say, that other country doesn't want somebody else to have. Um, so rather than... Like if I was in the Foreign Service and I was speaking to someone from another government, I would be wanting them to know that this was the official information from the United States and they should have it. So, And this is why there's so much brouhaha over the Russian ambassador. The Russian ambassador in Washington is a very, very good diplomat, but he also will do whatever he can to gather, to build relationships. Um, uh, you know, the Russians also... Whatever he can? Probably... <laughs> Yeah, the Russians are really good at gathering information that can be compromising and using it for blackmail and stuff. The, there's a word for it, right? Compr Compromat, yeah. Compromat, yeah. Yep. yep. Okay, then, uh, yeah. we have one more question right here. Yeah. Which is why foreign service officers always have to report any contact with Russians. <laughs> is that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely true, yeah. All countries? Yeah, Russia? yeah. No, Russia. Just Russia? Not just Russia, but that's, like, the one that's always worrisome. Yeah. What advice would you give to your younger self? What advice would I give to my younger self? Um, I would say do it again. Um, I had a really great career. Um, I really had a lot of fun living in different countries, really getting to know them. Um, I, um, you know, I have two girls who grew up in a couple of different countries. And um, speaking of cuisine, anytime I try Polish or Tunisian or anything, they just... I remember my younger daughter once cried the first time I tried to make couscous. Yeah, couscous. She, she said, this isn't right. So, yeah. 
So, but they've had a great, they had a great experience and, um, uh, it's such an interesting job, you know, and, and like I said, you know, you're, you are openly doing it. Your job is to get to know people, to talk to people, to think about how that fits into, um, policy priorities and to, you know, to give your opinion back and to try to have an impact on, on policy in Washington. It's not perfect and it's not for everybody. Um, but it was a really great career. And I'd say do it again. And would you tell your younger self, do it again, but if you can avoid this place. No, I would go to any of the places that I was in. In fact, I most of them I wish I could get back to. Yeah. Especially now. Um, uh, but yeah. I, that was me. That was not her. She's, she's a <laughs> diplomat. Uh, so... Uh, so I well I just actually that that's a wonderful question because that was going to be my que- last question just slightly differently though and you've started to say this but what would you say to sort of somebody who is thinking about going into work like this particularly right now right where they now. might think oh my gosh this is so yeah. mucked up and yeah. I'm not sure exactly what to make of this you know I since I teach at the Humphrey School I actually get asked that question. Um, what I recommend to students is that they do need to think about it really carefully um, because, I mean, I would say that at any time because it's, like I said, it's a job where you have to think about could I um, be involved in policies that I don't agree with? And um, so you have, to, you have to know whether or not you can do that. Can you represent your country with all its flaws? And um, I, I, what I've been telling the students who I have now um, is that I think it's worth pursuing it because in the first place it takes a long time to get through the process. Um, there may not be a lot of hiring, um, but but to be very careful about the jobs that they accept right now, um, especially if they have any thought of looking at political appointee jobs um, because um, I'm just not sure where that would take a young person um, but, you know, what I think is we actually need more good people in government and not fewer. And so I think it's still something really worth thinking about, even if right now it's kind of a difficult question. On that uh, optimistic note, uh, please, a big round of applause, Dr. Mary Curtin. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This entire season was supported by the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council and the Legacy Amendment. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see an upcoming show, you can find out more information by going to our website at www.t2p2.net. You can also find out about upcoming shows by finding us on social media, either on Facebook, Twitter, or signing up for our email list. We hope to see you sometime soon. Thanks.